Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, how's everything going? Oh man, everything is going. Um, barely, but going. The situation here at the Stahlberg compound is we welcomed into our family Ananda, who is a seven-week-old, adorable German shepherd. Uh, we've always wanted to get a dog, and a big impetus for doing it now was because of COVID, our two-and-a-half-year-old son is out of preschool, and we thought that uh, he loves dogs, and we thought that having the dog would give him something to do, would give us something to do, and um, it turns out that over the first 24 hours, my son's overwhelming emotion is jealousy. So, so um, maybe it'll, I mean, I don't know. We're all, we're all hanging in there. We're doing great. Um, we had peak, peak day one dog time as Ananda is shitting in the corner and Theo is screaming that it's time for Theo only time. Um, so here we are. How are you? I'm doing good. You know, the only dog trouble we had was uh, over Thanksgiving, our dog, Willie, uh, ate half of a cookie cake. So he he, uh, dragged it off the counter and just devoured it. So, you know. Better than eating your brother's COVID mask. (laughs) That is true. That is true. So besides that, we're, we're doing great over here. In Texas. So let's jump into today's topic. What are we going to talk about today, Brad? All right. So today we are going to talk about a recent article that is the latest in a series published by the New York Times doing pretty intensive investigative reporting on McKinsey and Company, the international consulting firm, the very prestigious international consulting firm's involvement with um, the opioid epidemic and not painting McKinsey in a very positive light at all, um, but very much in the spirit of the firm was encouraging uh, the large pharmaceutical companies to aggressively market opioids even knowing um, that they could potentially be addictive. And there's some stuff in there about um, alleged deleting of emails, really gnarly stuff. We'll include the link in the show notes. But this is relevant for a few reasons. The first, as many of you know, is I spent two years at McKinsey & Company. Um, So this type of story hits really close to home. Uh, the opioid crisis was starting around the time that I was at the firm. So we can talk a little bit about that. I had nothing to do with it, didn't work for those partners. Uh, would like to think that if I did, I would have blown the whistle, but it's harder to do when you're in the situation. So um, that's the acute setup. Why are we talking about it here is because we think it's just another example of high-performance cultures that are so focused on conventional success, on winning, and we can talk about what winning means, that there is ethical slippage that leads to something that can be extremely, extremely damaging. Um, It's very analogous to what Steve knows really, really intimately, which is some of the, um, the alleged doping at the Nike Oregon Project. 
Yeah, you know, as I was reading this uh, McKinsey and Company article put out by the New York Times, which we'll link to in the show notes on thegrowtheq.com, um, is is that similarity is that although it's outside of the sporting world, it's just as he said there, where the focus on success or the focus on winning causes you to narrow your view of the world, your frame frame of the world so small that you 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 don't these people obviously didn't step outside of this to see like how how dastardly or how unethical it was and it's the same in sporting cultures whether it's the Oregon project whether it's other uh doping uh cases or anti-doping cases that have come about and cheating cases is the the will to win blinds you from everything else. And from an outsider, it can be really hard to understand. And I think that's like, you know, Brad, when I read this McKinsey and company article, I, I, um, I, the, at, at the conclusion of reading it, I texted you and said, like, have you read this? Like, what's your thought? Because if you read this, it, seems horrible and it is horrible but it also seems inhumane on like how people get to that point whereas my response was i did read the article and it's really sad and it's not totally surprising so uh let me give a little bit more context because i think it'll be helpful so mckinsey and company has offices all over the world they are known over really the last, I don't know, six decades as being the premier management and strategic consulting firm in the world. Um, They tend to have their project teams on all sorts of stuff from top secret military campaigns to vaccine development to the World Bank to consumer product and goods. McKinsey... um, recruits very high performers that are driven and highly insecure um, because those are people that can work really hard. I was one of those people. And I say that lovingly. I think most type A high performers at age 22 are insecure. So it's not a knock on those people. Like I said, that that's me at age 22. It's still me to some extent because an insecure person is going to work their ass off. Um, All right. I don't want this to be bashing McKinsey. I am super proud of the work that I did at McKinsey and Company. I found that all of my work was ethical. As I said, as an international firm, there are are probably over 100 offices. I don't know exactly, but lots of offices and easily over 1,000 partners. So it's very complex. And different partners can operate in very small silos. So what one partner working for Purdue Pharmaceutical is doing can be totally different than what another partner is doing. Um, But when a story like this hits, the firm has to take responsibility. So in this particular instance, it appears that McKinsey consultants were well aware of the highly addictive potential of opioids. And instead of saying, well, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't be aggressively marketing these drugs, what they proposed, and this is New York Times reporting, not me saying it, is that the pharmaceutical company should just give rebates to the pharmacy when anyone comes in complaining about being addictive. So basically pay the pharmacy between ten and fifteen thousand person excuse me, ten and fifteen thousand dollars 
for the hassle of dealing with every new addict. That is really, really unethical, immoral, and just downright wrong any way you cut it. Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing reading that, <laughs> honestly. I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat laughing, but it's only to kind of ease that tension of, like, reading that and being like, how, like, again, having been in a situation where I've blown the whistle and seen ethical lines crossed and all that stuff, I think it's worth, you know, zooming out and asking and understanding, like, how do you even get to that point? Yeah, I mean, so I, like I said, I've never been to that point, never been close to that point. I'd like to think that I wouldn't be, but I can do my best to paint how that might happen. So if I put my mind in one of the partners working for, I think, was it Purdue Pharmaceutical, Steve? Was that the, the company? Yeah. If I put my mind in the partner working for Purdue Pharmaceutical, I can maybe imagine that I'm this big shot in the pharma practice out of New York or New Jersey or Boston. And my whole reputation depends on this relationship I have with Purdue Pharmaceutical, a huge client that's given us tons of business, and I just want to make them happy. And I can literally become so deluded that I no longer think that what I'm doing is wrong, even when it's so clearly wrong. Or you could just be an evil asshole that like only cares about money. McKinsey tends not to have too many of those people. What um, really separates McKinsey from so many other firms, especially from like banks, are the people that go to McKinsey, they tend to be super addicted to like relevance and problem solving and reputation and intellect. But then they would all wear like big fat Timex digital watches and drive Toyota Corollas because they got good gas mileage. So it's not like a glitzy and glamorous firm. It's a lot of nerds with digital watches that love problem solving in the thrill of being um, being called upon by these huge companies and governments. So, so, so go ahead. You're going to interject. Yeah. Go. Yeah. So that uh, thanks for painting that picture. That helps a lot, I think. Um, so I think that last part of what you said is for big companies, um, you know, massive companies, whatever. I think there's that that element that plays plays a role here. You know, we don't know the details too much, but I think what happens is we when and I'm going to branch this out to anti-doping world, which you know, in my experience, a little bit is what happens here is you have people who are young, right, um, who are very intelligent and very smart, but also driven and, as you said, insecure, doing work for massive, you know, billion dollar companies like Purdue Pharma. And what- yeah, but I'm talking about the partner. So, so we, we can get down to the analyst, which in this analogy is like the athlete. So the partner is like the coach. Okay. So, so at the partner level, like I said, they're either like downright evil and all they care about is the money or they really want to make the client happy and get the next project down the line. And if they're being evaluated based on sales of this drug, no different than a coach being evaluated based on winning medals, ethical slippage can, can unfortunately, it seems in, in today's day and age, all too easily happen. So that's the partner. The partner's like the coach. Um, so the example here is coach working for Nike. And a lot of people at Nike are great, but this coach is not and does really shady things. McKinsey partner working for McKinsey. A lot of people at McKinsey are great. Some aren't. This partner, clearly not. So then the question is, 
why aren't the engagement managers, the associates, the business analysts, some of the younger people fresh out of undergraduate school getting their MBA in their early 30s, why aren't they blowing the whistle, raising the flag, whatever you want to use as an analogy and saying, hold on, we are literally recommending that this company pays off local pharmacies for every addict that they create, something is wrong. And I think in your world, Steve, that's the equivalent to when, you know, set coach at Nike tells someone that they need to take EPO or testosterone or whatever it is. Why doesn't the athlete say, no, this is wrong? Makes sense. Thanks yeah. for the clarification there. So, so it's, it's, again, you're dealing with, uh, so in that situation, you're dealing with like several levels here. And I think there's questions on every level if we're, we're playing psychologists here a little bit is like <laughs> what pushes you to the point where you throw aside your ethics. And I think on the higher level, the coach, partner, whatever, um, there's a sense of, of you're working for these massive corporations. There's ego tied to it. There's your success. You're the one in charge, et cetera. You're the one who gets the credit or the blame. Um, so you want to figure out a solution and almost a solution no matter what, right? And that solution could be to sell more pharmaceutical drugs. That solution could be to win an Olympic medal, right? Whatever the, the end goal is, that end goal becomes more important than how you get there. Yes, 100%. And then as we go down the line to people who might not have that power or control or be in charge or, or have the decision making, it becomes, okay, we see these things happen that, you know, signal our ethical, you know, alarm a little bit. Why don't we say something, not do it? go to HR, blow the whistle, whatever whatever it is. And I think there it's a little it's a little different in the sense that there's a power dynamic difference and that you probably don't feel like you have said control. I don't know what it's like at McKinsey, but from a coach athlete, you know, differential, there's definitely a power dynamic. There's also the brand, whether you're working for Purdue Pharmaceuticals, McKinsey and Company, Nike, whatever, there's this almost allure of I'm in this wonderful job, wonderful thing. And if I lose that, what am I going to do? Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's hard. And I found this in the anti-doping world. The doping world is that it's hard to get across why people, you know, make at the lower levels, make the decisions they do. And a lot of times what I found is it's not just one major decision that, that happens. It's not, Hey, let's put a stop to let's, let's not sell, you know, drugs and to, to get people addicted and, and pay the pharmacies $10,000 per addiction. There, there's like multiple steps and justifications to get to that point where it doesn't see, seem like as big of a jump as it does when we're just presented with that fact. Yeah. So let's try to walk through how a McKinsey consultant, a young person that, you know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, came in with 
good values, the right mind, how they could get to that point. And then maybe we can talk about if it's similar in the world of sport. And then what are some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Guardrails or bumpers that you can put in place to ensure that this doesn't happen to you or that if you're coaching or teaching or parenting that you can, you can allay to the people that you work with. Perfect. All right. So study starts and or I shouldn't even say the study. The, and for those that are like, what's a study? At McKinsey, we call a project a study. So study starts and um, you're working with Purdue Pharma probably before you even know that these drugs are so addictive because a lot of people claim that, you know, it took a little while to figure out how addictive these drugs were once they're on the market. So that partner might have already had the relationship. Uh, now you've got these young people, business analysts coming in And you're probably telling yourself a story, I have to imagine, that these drugs do a ton of good. They really help people in pain. McKinsey didn't exist in a vacuum, right? This was around the time that pain was made like the fifth vital sign. So it was um, really prioritized in the physician medical community. And you're saying that it's really unfortunate that some people get addicted, but the, the pros outweigh the cons. That's got to be what you're saying. I'm not defending McKinsey at all because at some point you're like, well, wait a minute. We know that there's opioids. At some point you're asking, why are these drugs so addictive? You're asking what drugs are similar? And the answer is heroin. Um, But maybe you just have blinders on or you're willfully blind at least. And you don't want to ask those questions. And then eventually it just becomes an interesting intellectual problem. And at that point you're screwed. Because all morals are at the door. And how do you solve a problem of like potentially very downside risk, but where the upside of having like high volume sales is huge? Easy. Insurance. So some consultant at McKinsey was probably like, this is an insurance problem. And they're all like, yes, let's just insure the pharma. um, Let's insure the pharmacies against the downside of addicts. And that way we can keep selling these drugs through the pharmacies. And they're like, brilliant. Because it is. It's a brilliant, it's an elegant solution to a problem. The problem is it's not a video game. It's real people's fucking lives. So, and I've been in those rooms. And yeah. I've been in those rooms for ethical things. And, and it is. Like when, when you can like take, like have that elegant, I could picture myself in the room with the project team, the study team, just being like, oh, like this is just like an agency risk problem. Let's treat it like insurance. Let's insure the pharma companies. Excuse me. Let's insure the pharmacies against the downside and then we can reap the upside and some wizard had a model and they're probably like, you know, 19% of people get addicted. So 19 times this many patients filling their prescriptions and they can do the math and clearly show it's a profitable move and they've won the game. So there I think is a great example of like detaching it from the reality that it is. Um, you're detaching and separating yourself so that it's like you said, it's a math problem and it's no longer a human problem. So a math problem is easy to easy to solve, you know, and it's, it's no different than if you look at, you know, horrible things and more, what generally happens is you dehumanize the other side so that, like, you can almost have this um, 
this detachment from what actually is happening and what actually is going on. So you get people doing horrible things, you know? Yep. I mean, the Nazis are like, they're FedEx, right? It's a logistics yeah. problem. How many people can we ship through? It sounds terrible, but that like, there's a, there's a brilliant book. It's called Ordinary Men. I'm forgetting who wrote it, but it basically asked the question, how can ordinary men execute the Holocaust? The ordinary men being all the Germans that participated and a big part of the the answer that this researcher found was just that they they started solving logistics problems and the logistics were how many Jews could we kill yep <laughs> yeah i mean that that is it uh point blank and 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 bluntly and i think that that is like again i i, I think to reiterate a little bit it starts with a story it starts with small justifications and like rationalizations and also I think a little bit of uh, separating yourself from the the issue itself. And I think that's where, again, if you look at consultants, consultants have to be even more careful on this side because they're not, they're brought in to solve a problem. They're not seeing like the full picture or having the full like, you know, there's, I guess what I'm trying to say is you solve a problem and then you're, you're on to the next problem, right? Yes. It's, it's not, you're not zooming out and saying, and seeing like the entirety of it, which causes you to have this like blinders like effect where, you know, you miss all the downsides of that potential solution. Yep. And that's at the analyst level, at the partner level or the coach level in a consulting firm, these rainmaker partners that have huge clients, it's not like you can easily find new multi-billion dollar corporations to serve their CEOs. You have a handful of clients that you serve on all kinds of projects. So you want to keep your client happy. I cannot imagine, I guess maybe 1% of me could imagine, but it's very hard for me to imagine that Purdue went to McKinsey and said, we have a highly addictive drug. It's a derivative of opium. People are getting addicted. What should we do? It was probably more like, what is risk mitigation? Or how do we increase, you know, even just how do we increase sales? And a part of increasing sales, well, it might come up that suddenly CVS doesn't want to sell your shit. Well, what are you going to do for CVS? Um, but it, it, it's, it, it, I'm, I'm hesitating so much because I'm really trying to go back there and put myself in the situation of an analyst or even some of the partners I knew. And I just can't. Like, so some of it maybe is just downright evil. I texted um, Bob Kosher, who is one of the stars in peak performance. I got to know him really well. He was a big partner at McKinsey. He later went on to work at the White House. He is such a wonderful person. And similar to you, Steve, I'm just like, oh, did you read the story? And Bob's response was simple. He's like, McKinsey's a huge firm, lots of good partners doing lots of good work, some bad partners doing really bad work. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's part of human nature <laughs> as well as you're going to have the people who, um, who cheat, who uh, morality goes out the window at every level. I think, you know, I think at the, the company level or consultancy level, or we'll say the, cor- the organization level, it's how do you make sure those people 
aren't in positions to have influence over this stuff and are weeded out. And obviously, I think from a, a corporation company level, that's the failing on that side. I agree. And I'm really trying to play devil's advocate because y'all that have been listening to the podcast know it's very easy for me to just start dropping F-bombs and take the self-righteous high road. I'm trying not to do that here. This study happened, what, 2017, 2018? Because McKinsey, I think in early 2019, severed all relationships with any company making opioids. So back then, things were bad, but I don't think it was like a headline story. And they're not, and this is something that you know really well, Steve, from your time at Nike, they were not breaking any laws. Drugs were allowed, side effects were known, pharmacies were pissed off that people were having side effects. Yeah, I mean, that's, I'm not sure, that's a, again, you know, I think if we, if we put ourselves in their situation, that was probably the justification rationalization that went through things, right? The drug is like, as you said, I know this one well, like, the drug is allowed, it's not breaking any laws, like it's been through FDA clearance, etc. Like they're prescribing it, the doctors are in charge of prescribing yep. it, they're prescribing it for whatever, for patients that they think need it, like we're not in charge of prescribing it, you know. Um, the doctors are making those decisions and they're the ones who are informed. So you're essentially um, giving away responsibility because you're saying, well, what's our role in this? Like, we're just helping sell this drug. We're not the ones giving it to people. Yep. And the doctors are saying the same thing, right? They're saying that, hey, the FDA approved it. We've been briefed by the drug companies. I have patients in front of me that are suffering and I want to help alleviate their suffering. So it, it, there's a real agency problem in this particular example with everyone kind of pointing the fingers at each other. Uh, and I think that's in no small part why this grew to be such a fiasco. The flip side of that is if you'd have a few brave people in the system somehow able to still see clearly and say, we know that the compound in this drug is heroin. We know that heroin is bad. People are getting addicted. Maybe we should really seriously consider the like risk benefit of prescribing these drugs um, and then and then blow the whistle or raise the flag. I, I do think there's one other complicating factor here, not to like nerd out on, on opioids, but these drugs are still legal and they can be super helpful to certain patient populations. So like when opioid crisis was peaking in late 2019, I remember reading in some healthcare journals that a huge population that was suffering because of it were um, terminal cancer patients because they weren't being prescribed opioids because the doctors were scared. But in the article said those people need opioids because they have like deep, like cancer is eating their bones. So it, it still isn't that straightforward. I get it. When you zoom out, it's that straightforward. And I'm not defending any of this. What I'm trying to do is like really think how can you make yourself aware to the complexity while you're in it and still be able to see enough to say, wait a minute, like this doesn't make sense. So I think you hit it um, right there in the sense that to me, it's a zooming problem. It's mm. when, when you're in it, 
like you've got to be able to zoom out because you're too far, you're too narrow. And the deeper in you go, like this McKinsey consultants trying to solve this narrow problem, like that narrows you in so much that you're only looking around in like a, you know, a, a microscope or whatever you have, right? You can't zoom out and see everything else. And then if you zoom all the way out, and if you have no experience, we'll say, and you're just, we'll say you're some legislator sitting in Washington seeing opioid crisis and saying, hey, we've got to do something, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe your, your choice is to do something like cut it all, cut it all down. Well, then you're not able to zoom in far enough to see, in this case, like cancer, terminal cancer patients who this serves really well. So to me, it's like figuring out how in those instances you have people who are the opposite of whatever the primary thing is. So the, the, the legislator will say zoomed all the way out needs some doctor, you know, cancer doctor who can tell him this. The McKinsey consultant who's zoomed all the way in or pharmaceutical company who zoomed all the way in on profits and finding solutions needs somebody with the ability or who is, you know, zoomed out, stepping back and seeing the perspective on, hey, these are human beings we're working with. These are real lives that we're going to impact. Yeah. And, and, the analogy in sport, correct me if I'm wrong, would be, I guess the tunnel vision is I want to win this medal and I'm going to do everything possible to win this medal. That's zooming in and then zooming out is, well, what would my wife's dad think if I told her about the things I'm doing to win this medal? Or what are my grandkids going to think if the New York Times finds out the things that I'm doing to win this medal? Uh, I think there's this like old heuristic that basically says, if you can't tell your grandma that you're proud of it, you probably shouldn't do it. It's a pretty good heuristic, I, I feel like. Yeah, so it is. It's a, it's a zooming in in and out thing. And then like a sanity check thing too, I think, to just constantly ask yourself like, does this make sense? So, yeah. So let's dive into that a little bit on, okay, we've, we've gone through this kind of zooming problem. What does that mean for the everyday person? Because, you know, a listener might sit there and be like, well, I'm never going to work for McKenzie. I'm never going to be in high level sport and have to come across these things. But I think every one of us to a degree is put in a position where our ethical boundaries are at least tested. Um, and I think this idea of zooming and gaining perspective is is very powerful and very easy to talk about, but it's much harder to enact ways or like uh, bulletproof yourself to a degree against it. So if I'm, th- you know, I'll give my own experience and what I, I did and what I wish I had while I was going through the... Um, my own whistleblowing thing. So is, for those, for those that don't know, cause you know, we might have some listeners that don't long before Steve and I worked together and I'm going to tell it Steve. So you don't have to tell it for the gazillionth time. 
Steve was a performance specialist, coach, exercise scientist with Nike, in particular, a group called the Nike Oregon Project, which was then coached by a guy named Alberto Salazar. They coached many of the best runners in the world. Steve saw things that were very, very questionable going on um, and related to performance enhancing drugs. And he blew the whistle and it set off an enormous investigation, which uh, may or may not be ongoing. Obviously, you know better than me, Steve, and um, led to Alberto Salazar being banned from the sport for a period of time, fired from Nike, this, that, and the other. Um, So yes, Steve was one of the people that in the McKinsey example was working on the project and said, (laughs) we're paying the drug dealer (laughs) at the street level. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things, and again, I made my own mistakes in there. You can dive into that if you want. Um, But, you know, one of the things that helped with me was having outside people and communicating with them with what was going on. I did not always do it well. And sometimes they gave me the wrong advice because, like, they don't know what was going on inside even if i describe it because it's hard to understand but like having close friends and family members who i could call upon and be like hey tell me if this is crazy or not and at first i'll be honest i'd say that a couple times and the prestige of the the position and job and all that would blind even outsiders who were close to me they'd be like well you know just make it to the olympic games or make it to this and this and this But over time, it got to the point where it's like, no, no, like, this is nuts. Like, it's probably time to go, you know? And and I think, like, having others to bounce those ideas to have that check on you is incredibly important. And a lot of times, these corporations or companies, whether inside or outside sport, discourage that by creating an environment where it's essentially or a team where it's essentially closed off. Sometimes there's non-disclosure agreements. Sometimes there's, you know, uh, you know, don't, don't talk about any of this to anybody on the outside, which I think hampers things to a large degree, because I think that is your best weapon on any of this stuff. And if I was to take this outside of this to, you know, other examples or to everyday life, I think, It's making sure you have friends and family members who are not just blindly supportive, which is most of the time what our family is, but like can provide perspective when you need it. And not all your friends are going to be great at that. Some people are just, you know, they're going to be very supportive, but they're not good at giving you the hard perspective. So it's really finding those people in your life who you trust who who can like give you that hard perspective and you not like flip out on them, but like take the time to ask and understand if they're right. And and this, this is such a good lesson, not only for these enormous issues with huge implications, but even for the more trivial day-to-day issues. Right. So in my relationship with Steve, we check each other on social media. So if we ever look at the other person's profile and we say like, oh, like he's being the self-promotional douchebag that we can't, un- that like we hate, we just pick up the phone and call each other. We're like, hey man, you're starting to look more like the self-promotional douchebag, just letting you know. And then instead of getting mad at each other, we're like, oh, thanks. What do you think? Like, what, what was the tipping point? How can I stop? And then we stop. 
Uh, so I think it's a really good lesson in general that when you're, it gets kind of back to zooming, not kind of, 100% back to zooming. When you're in the thick of something very intense, it's easy to lose perspective, whether the endeavor is big or small, consequential or trivial. And having people that are outside that can see more clearly can help you maintain perspective. Exactly. And what, one of the things that I've really learned after going through that whole endeavor myself is also, you know, stop pause, finding moments to pause and reflect and like ask myself, what am I rationalizing and justifying? Now, this yeah. is, I think, a little more difficult to do with yourself, but like, it's still good to have those periods where you check and you ask, okay, like whenever I'm making a, a, a major decision, checking and being like, okay, what are my reasons for this? And what one of these are really rationalizations and not not like actual actual reasons? Because sometimes it's okay to rationalize, but you want to at least be aware that you're doing that, I think, in getting to to a decision. I'd offer something that in this situation, because it is so hard to self-rationalize with yourself in a heated situation when reason's hard to come by, uh, another technique is we wrote about this in the passion paradox just a little bit. It's something I use all the time with my entrepreneur coaching clients is what we call a pre-mortem. So a post-mortem, right, is everything went to crap and you evaluate how it happened. A pre-mortem is pretending that everything goes to crap and then going over what went wrong. So normally we do this for a business problem. But you could do it ethically, too. So you could be like at the start of a study, you could be like, two years from now, the New York Times is breaking a story that we totally dropped the ball. We did something terrible. Lives were lost because of it. How did it go wrong? And then maybe in trying to answer that question, you say, wow, like we really, I mean, I'm sure they would have said, we know that we're dealing with a drug with the potential for addictiveness. Maybe we overlook that potential. We don't, we don't focus on it enough, or even worse, we try to like counteract that and tons of people get addicted and die. And if you go through that process, then you have a little bit more of an ability to pause when you get to the point of the study where you're like, this is an insurance problem. No, it's not an insurance problem. It is an addiction problem. Um, the, going back to the transparency thing, because it, in McKinsey in particular, They've made some changes completely as a result of the opioid studies, as well as some work they did with foreign governments that was covered in a not so positive light, that McKinsey used to be highly secretive. So you, to your point, you signed NDAs or whatever, client confidentiality agreements. I don't know if they were as binding, but as a 22-year-old, they scare the hell out of you. You couldn't talk to anyone about the work that you're doing. And the way that the firm justified that and I think that there is a lot of truth in this, is that we're operating in highly competitive marketplaces. Oftentimes, you have one client that's Pepsi and you know Brad partner serving Pepsi and Steve partner serving Coke. So we need to maintain that confidentiality. Otherwise, clients aren't going to trust us. So there is a real need for that confidentiality, um, but it has this unintended consequence of making ethical creep much more likely. And 
those would be fascinating conversations because, like I said, the firm has made changes to their transparency stuff. This was reported on in the, the national news. I don't know what those changes are. Um, I can assure you that they're not going to publish every single one of their studies because then they lose their value to their clients. Um, so that's just another like interesting trade-off that McKinsey now has to face as a result of it. And I'm not at McKinsey anymore. I don't know these two partners. I don't think they were named in the 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 article. Maybe they were. I hope that the firm fires them. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think it's, it's, um, it's, there's a point of rationalization and empathy and understanding, but there's also a point of responsibility for, um, taking, you know, taking responsibility for the actions that you, uh, you did. So in setting an example, because otherwise you're going to have the next project team come in and, say that they're, you know, blinded or that they're narrow and not even say again, what's up, Willie? That's Steve's dog's Willie. If we're giving everyone, he probably smells Ananda over here waking up. If we're giving everyone the benefit of the doubt in this, it's not even to say that you weren't looking clearly. You just weren't seeing clearly, but this is about pausing. Um, there's one more element. And then I think the dogs are telling us that it's time to go. We'll keep today a little bit shorter. And that is speed. So I think that this is another thing, certainly in the McKinsey world that gets in the way, is that you're often working under a lot of pressure so fast to get a study done. And it can be hard just to take the time to slow down and do that sanity check because you're going at warp speed. So to add to our list of ways to counter this, the various ways of getting perspective, I think something else is to ask yourself, do you even have the time to reflect And do you want to be in a situation where you feel so much pressure that you're moving so fast that you could wake up two years later and have to have the New York Times tell you that ultimately what you were doing is helping set up a program to get people addicted to heroin? Yeah, that's such a good point. I think that it's like the important, it's like the level of importance blinds. And then also if you're doing it so quickly that you can't zoom out, that it, everything feels rushed, pressured, et cetera, then that's just another way that you kind of get trapped. So it's not only zooming out, it's also, as you said earlier, finding ways to pause, finding ways to figure out how, if you can pause, reflect and create that space so that you can see things a little bit more clearly. Yep. And and have the humility to know that it can happen to you. Like if it sounds like Steve and I are on here defending McKinsey and company, we're not. But you didn't really hear Steve or I say, oh, we never would have done that. I think I said, I hope I wouldn't have done that. And I think Steve said, I did some things really well. I did some things wrong. But I actually think... In a paradoxical twist, it's the person that says, oh, I, I never would have done that. My values are way too bulletproof. You know, fuck McKinsey. That's the only thing to say on this issue. To me, that's the person that's most likely to go down a rabbit hole like this next. 100%. I think I, I couldn't agree more as my dog agrees as well. But I, I think that, that that false sense of security blinds. And I'm reminded... I've lately been reading a a Lincoln biography on how he navigated the Civil War. And uh, there was a great letter he wrote to one of his friends where he talks about slavery and abolition. And he talks about his regret 
and not doing something years earlier and just essentially, you know, rationalizing it and, and ignoring it. And I think that that ability to realize that, hey, we're not perfect, we might make some wrong decisions, but then that like gives us the space and freedom to understand that, you know, um, we can make amends and also um, figure out a better way forward as well. Bingo. Steve and I are so imperfect. I think something that we did well today, and we're kind of patting ourselves on the back here, listeners, I swear this isn't scripted. We didn't know we'd end here, is when we read that story, instead of just saying these people are terrible, we said, this is terrible. Let's think about how it could have happened and give all those people the benefit of the doubt so we can learn more about ourselves and we can share that with our listeners So if any one of us are in a situation like this, we can kind of see how it happens. Um, So I hope that we provided you with that. Uh, We recorded this one at the last minute, so it's just lightly edited. So please excuse us if um, if the quality wasn't up to snuff. If my brain quality wasn't up to snuff, I'm on zero sleep, seven week old puppy, two and a half year old that loves him half the time, is jealous half the time. And Steve, because of COVID, can't be in the same room as me to like elbow me in the side. So my apologies for my sleepless brain today. (laughs) It's all good. So thanks again for listening. Let us know what you think as always. Check out the... Our, uh, our podcast notes and blogs at thegrowtheq.com. And until next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.